Hello and welcome to the Week at Work uh, podcast. This is episode 13. Um, I'm your host, Dave Gibney, and with me again, I have three guests. Um, we have our two regulars and Stevie Nolan from Trademark Belfast and Kieran Campbell, who works for Mandate Trade Union uh, as a divisional organizer in the North and Western Division. Also on the show this week, uh, we have a special guest. We've got Jean O'Dowd, who's the regional officer uh, for Unite the Union in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, as usual, we're going to go straight to the front pages of this week's papers. Um, I'll go to Kieran first. Can you tell us what paper you've been reading and what's on the front pages of it? Thanks, Dave. Hope you're well. Um, yeah, looking at the Sunday Independent, um, the, main pit, or the main story on the front page is the Ruth Marcy story in an interview, exclusive interview with her husband, Paul Marcy. This was a very sad um, situation that developed. And to be quite honest with you, um, it really indicts the likes of the Tanisha, um, Leo Faradka, and, and how he behaved during the week in terms of more or less saying that he, the, the state did issue an apology um, to this poor woman and her family. Um, the other issue that really strikes out, and I think we're going to touch on it in some shape or form, is the Eamon Ryan story, which goes into more detail inside the paper. The Ryan staff numbers prompt concern, and this is effectively about the Green Party's leader um, awarding jobs to a number of people. And, you know, I think we'll touch again on the Gene Carrigan soapbox um, article in respect of a lot of this. Um, I think this podcast is actually should be renamed the Gene Carrigan Fan Club. Um, but I looked at the Sunday world, north and south, typical of the tabloids, um, very much. If you look at the, the southern edition, it talks about Mr. Big and Force and busted by a phone call, tap. And then in the northern edition, again, depressingly, we're talking about um, a potential UFF feud in North Antrim um, and around um, drugs and the, the prevalence of shame um, and how they want to try and spread out their drug business into the North Antrim towns. So really, that's what I was looking at this morning. Great. Uh, thanks for that. We will get into some of those stories in detail in a few minutes. Stevie, what have you been looking at there? Well, <clears throat> as a good loyal subject of Her Majesty the Queen, I, of course, bought the British version of the Sunday Times. Uh, and I didn't really want to pick it up because two-thirds of the front cover was taken up with um, some delusional, dysfunctional family that think they're descended from fucking King Arthur or King Alfred. I think they're known as the Royals. And that takes up the whole front page of the British Sunday Times. So further, further down, right at the bottom of the page, is quite an amusing story about COVID-19. Um, Britain's put Spain back on the red list. So if you're currently on holiday in Spain, as is to, uh, as our two government ministers, you have to quarantine for two weeks when you get back. Uh, and that's going to affect about 1.5 million people who are currently in Spain or about to come back from Spain. I think that refers to us. So um, just more COVID fun for everybody. The front page of the... The Irish news, a bit more serious one, is a really interesting story there. We're kind of involved in it tangentially about um, the Black Lives Matter protests in Derry and Belfast last month or two months ago nearly now. Um, and of course, the police decided to arrest and charge and fine about 70 or 80 people who attended the Black Lives Matter campaign. And then a week later, there was a huge kind of loyalist um, protest or defence of the First World War Monument in Belfast, and of course, no fines were handed out of that. So um, currently, representatives of ethnic minority groups in, in the north are refusing to meet the 
um, Chief Constable Simon Byrne and said he apologises and removes all the fines. So there's a really interesting story there about obviously why the police arrested and fined a load of young people and black people uh, and left a big group of um, uh, loyalists all alone to themselves. You can read into that what you want. Yeah, no, as someone who was at the Derry uh, Black Lives Matter protest at the time, um, the swarm of PSNI around um, shooting fish in a barrel was, 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 it would be hilarious if it wasn't such a serious issue, but they were literally, as we've said on this podcast before, walking around the back of the protest, grabbing individuals who were, were all social distancing, but because they were there, they were, uh, it was like a, a revenue raising uh, protest for them. Um, Steve, you want back in on that, yeah? Yeah, just to make sure everyone knows that there was a really um, kind of good crowdfunding campaign around that and tens of thousands of pounds were raised um, by a number of activists in the North who are currently paying those fines for those people. But it's the principle, of course, that they were fined and others weren't and that kind of difference was made based on the, the fact that it was a political left-wing kind of ca- demonstration and they were easy targets for the PSNI, you know? So that would be an interesting one to see how that ends up. It's even a good contrast there to hear you talking about some of the ministers um, from the, the British government who were overseas in Spain and red-listed countries who are going to have to isolate themselves for, for 14 days when they come back. And yet, you know, these are ministers breaching what, you know, health guidelines are. But if you're protesting about keeping black people alive, we're going to, we're going to arrest you and we're going to fine you. So it, it's, it's an interesting one, actually, because, there, and we, again, we might come back to it in a minute after we, we go to Jean next, but because um, the public services in, I think it's the Sunday Business Post this week, public servants are being told that if they do go to um, any of the red-listed countries, as you call them, um, that they aren't allowed to work even from home while they're self-isolating for the 14 days. So I'm wondering, will the ministers in the British government be told, no, you can't be a minister for the next two weeks, you have to take your annual leave. Uh, Stevie, would, would anyone would anyone actually notice if British ministers weren't working day or were working? And let's you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, let's hope their two week isolation is permanent. Life ex- life living conditions will probably go up for a while if they're if they're forced to not work. Jean, what have you been looking at there in the the papers? Uh, I was kind of looking at the Sunday Business Post, and I suppose I focused in on the main stories that were um, dominating our news uh, in the Republic last week, which was. Uh, the minimum wage, uh, the living wage, um, and the whole debacle that went with that. Um, and then the uh, huge issue that we have going on at the minute with the super minister, junior minister's um, allowance of 16,000, which 16,000 is 4,000 more than our pensioners uh, have to live on for the year. And it's outrageous, absolutely outrageous. So, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm focusing on. And uh, I'd like to just say a few bits about Devon and Workers as well. All right, okay. Well, we'll come to that in a couple of seconds. Right? I'm just going to quickly tell you what I've been looking at. And, and it's very unusual for me to do this, but we did um, review this week's Friday's uh, Irish Independent because of the fiscal stimulus plan, which I presume we're going to get into in a couple of minutes. But front page of Friday's Independent says, price falls expected as VAT cut in, in, in 7 billion rescue. But uh, I find the subheading a little bit funny. Um, Donahue tells retailers to pass on the reductions to customers as if he has any level of control over whether or not an, empl- uh, an employer or a retail outlet or a, a bar or a hotel or whatever is, has ever uh, listened to a minister and actually implemented what they've, they've requested. So um, he said, you know, that, that there's a cut and back, which we'll get into later on. We've also, the, to yesterday or this weekend's Irish Times, and on the front page of that is the government's plan to reopen schools 
um, is set to cost hundreds of millions of euros. Again, another story we might get into because the um, teachers unions have obviously been very vocal on what should happen. And then we have uh, the likely return of Bewley's on Grafton Street as Bewley's make, makes offer to landlord to save cafe. So apparently the group um, that own Bewley's uh, are, are running it, Paddy Campbell's group, uh, have raised enough revenue to keep the, the, the cafe open. Um, there's other little bits and pieces on, on the front page, but nothing um, substantial. On the Sunday Business Post, um, I'm looking at the, the front here, and government to restrict eviction ban to tenants who can't pay due to COVID-19. So the current ban on evictions is about to expire, and they're now saying that you will, uh, you will be allowed to evict people provided they haven't lost their job or lost income on the back of COVID. Um, then below that, there's the business groups demand stronger fiscal supports in upcoming budgets. I mean, we'll get into this one in a minute because I think it's, it's um, as we know, back in about 1906, 1907, James Connolly wrote a poem, um, We Only Want the Earth, uh, about you know, workers increasing their demands but Jesus the business lobby in Ireland there's nothing that ever satisfies them they just want everything and they have no shame about it I mean it's a, a five billion or a seven billion plan that's effectively putting money into the back pockets of these businesses and yet they're still not satisfied they want more and then there's a really interesting one again we might get into it uh, front page of the business post michael brennan has an article holiday makers are to lose their pandemic payments so if you're unemployed and you have flown abroad on holiday like one of those ministers you are going to lose your pandemic unemployment benefit uh, it says that social welfare officers and Gardaí are checking the names of departing passengers at airports to see if any of them are claiming pandemic unemployment payments or job seekers payments, which is a very classist thing to do. Um, you know, people who've lost their jobs are going to lose their payments. But if you're lucky enough to have kept your job and you're flying overseas, there's nothing that's going to happen to you. You will face no penalty. So basically, uh, yeah, another classist perspective from um, from our government. Uh, okay, I'm going to go to Kieran first. To, uh, for a story what, what what story do you want to focus in on this week well the one that i was focusing on was really the situation in terms of i think it's a disgraceful um, development but one that doesn't surprise me and it was the whole issue about one um passing the legislation to have three rather than two super junior ministers and the increase of the 16 grand which i think gene was touch, touching upon um in respect of how that correlates with what pensioners are expected to live on um the 16 grand was an additional allowance added on to what is a very hefty pay packet and i think gene carrigan in his soapbox column adequately sums it up you know the general election was portrayed as some sort of um vote for change and when you look at these particular parties Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and uh, the Green Party forming this government we are not really seeing change in fact the double standards of the Fianna Fáil party was led by when Fianna Gael when they came into power in 2016 um, were looking to have three super junior ministries and Fianna Fáil voted against it no sooner when they get back into government they put their nose in the trough and straight away they pass this legislation very quickly, I must add, um, to ensure that they will have their three junior or super junior ministers. And it just smacks of very bad, very poor optics. And I have to say that, you know, in the Sunday Independent, um, they quote one senior Fianna Gael TD said it was, and I quote, politically fucking stupid. 
and again, quote, and it was gold for the shinners, which it was, and rightly so. But this just demonstrates, most particularly the two civil war parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, do not give a damn and will not um, deliver on a change programme, which they said they would, given the results of the election. And, you know, it begs questions sometimes, maybe, do we get what we deserve? Possibly, yeah. I mean, just just uh, so the listeners understand, and I know, Gene, you might want to come in on this one, but, um, I, and I'm, I'm sure everybody knows this anyway, but the doll voted 72 to 46 to pass the, as it's called, the nauseating proposals, which guarantees Fianna Fáil government chief whip, Jack Chambers and Fine Gael, Minister of State uh, for Climate Change and Transport, Hildegard Norton, receive a 16,288 euro, 16, euro supplement on top of their ministerial salary of 124 grand. So now their pay is up as, as high as 140,000 euros. Um, you know, someone asked the question on Twitter earlier on, what, what is it that you can buy for 140 grand that you can't afford on 124 grand anyway? It's, it's, it is, it stinks, it really does. And, you know, Paul Murphy, Richard Boyd Barrett, the Shinners, the, the opposition are actually working quite well on some of this stuff. Uh, Paul Murphy described the additional supplements as scandalous. He, he asked the question, could we maybe have a round of applause on a Thursday night and that would do it because it's meant to do it for healthcare workers and for the Debenhams workers. Richard Boyd Barrett in the doll actually gave a round of applause, a slow clack for the government on this one. But um, Jean, do you want to come in and say anything about it? Yeah, look, I just think this is uh, outrageous. You know, there's other countries out there and they're actually taking pay cuts, the ministers. Um, and this is what, you know, this is the carry on of what we're at. And, and they justify it by saying that they're fighting the injustice of, of, of it. And you're kind of going, if you want to fight an injustice and you want to have everybody on an even keel, then take the other two down so that they're all on an even keel. The amount of money... Uh, you know, I, I, when I was reading it there this morning, I was just going, I, I, I looked up, um, even for the Kian Kiorla, uh, his is 96 basic and he gets 39,000 in allowances. I mean, across the board, the money that these people are getting for the jobs they're doing, they're lining their own pockets constantly. Uh, we saw it in the pandemic with the healthcare workers and not just the healthcare workers, the invisible people like the cleaners um, who, if they didn't do their job properly, we'd have been screaming and shouting about it, but they just got lost through it. Uh, everybody was expected to pull together, you know, they're, they're, the government are still with this logo of we're in this together. They're not in this with, with us. They were never in this with us, um, you know, and what to do about it. Uh, we did it for the, the right to water. If, if the country is, you know, outraged, as they say they are, well, then we shouldn't be sticking, you know, by it. We shouldn't be allowing it um, and we should be doing something about it. Yeah. I mean, it requires a political strategy of the left. Um, yeah. Steve, you want in on it quickly? Yeah, just very briefly, I was reading in the Indo that on top of that, I think Kieran mentioned it at the start, that um, Eamon Ryan's about to get eight special advisors as well, about two chiefs of staff and another six advisors with on a, on a hundred grand each. So, I mean, it's shocking really when you think about it. But, I mean, just as an aside, I mean, where does one actually apply for one of those jobs? I just wondered, just asking for a friend like, you know, 100 grand a year sounds like a lot of money to tell someone who's obviously very, fairly thick that he's thick. But uh, so I think I could do that quite well, you know. I think you could as well. Um, you might even be better than the existing ministers, super junior ministers that they're called. But what, what, what's um, really striking about that, uh, you know, when you're, we're always told to compare across Europe and, uh, you know, how, how other countries are doing on everything, whether it's economic or, 
whatever. But when you look, and, and this was picked up on Twitter yesterday again, um, the super junior ministers, uh, the, the three of them, are now going to be earning more than the prime ministers of Italy and Spain. The Irish super junior ministers, people who sit at cabinet but do not have a vote at cabinet, they don't have a say on anything, are going to be paid now more than the prime ministers of two of Europe's you know, most populated and wealthiest countries. It's incredible. Uh, Kieran, you want to come back in on it? Yeah, just, and again, back to our position as the Gene Carrigan fan club. He does go on to state towards the end of his soapbox article um, where he um, articulates that Ken Fox, who committed a further shameless act of journalism and used freedom of information to discover that Leo Faradka while Tisha in 2017 quietly restored a range of goodies that former holders of his office enjoyed until 2012. For example, he introduced VIP airport facilities for ex-Tisha and support when traveling abroad. He restored secretarial arrangements. In other words, Bertie Ahern wouldn't have to type his own letters. And it goes on and on. And all of this, he reckons that the restoration of some of these facilities for Bertie O'Hare alone will cost the guts of half a million. Jeez. And, and this is a man who's currently on a pension of 150 grand a year. Plus, and he still, quotes that. He's still working. He's, um, he's receiving, I believe, 70 grand there he got in 2016 or 17, 70 grand for speeches that he made on top of that. So, yeah, it's, it's not like these people need that, that extra facility. Uh, if they want it, they can pay for it. They're on the salary to do so. Um, Stevie, do you have any other stories you want to come in on here, or do you want to stick with this one even? No, well, it's related, I suppose. It's more about the Green Party, everyone's favourite punching bag at the moment. You can't help ourselves, like I know. But, um, and it's about the formation of a ginger group within that party, a kind of factional group within the Green Party called the Just Transition Greens. I think Lorna Bogue is involved, and I know that John Barry up in Belfast is one of the people involved. And, um, and it's an attempt, I suppose, on their part to try and, one, keep left-wing Greens in the party, I suppose, because an awful lot have been leaving, if you've been watching over the last few days, including, of course, Susan McHugh. But they also leave open membership of this Just Transition group to people who are not in the Green Party. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a weird, has a foot in both camps, inside and outside the party. But it um, uh, be interesting to see how that develops and where that goes, because you could argue that... <clears throat> the formation of a kind of left green faction in the party is actually preparing the way for maybe another spin-off group or another spin-off political party. Um, it's just a pity that so many good thinkers and left activists in the green movement and other ways uh, and in other areas think that parliamentary democracy is the, is the, is the only road to change things. Um, if, if it was, as they said, if you know, if it was their famous quote, if a vote could change anything, it'd make it illegal. Mm -hmm. I mean, these systems are set up in order to preserve the status quo and to make sure that Changes can be incremental and little bits on the edges, but if we want the kind of fundamental and transformative change that we need to see over the next 10 or 20 years, it's not going to come through the door alone. Mm. You know, but to be so be anyway, be interesting to see what happens. That would be just transition group and where they go and what they do and what they get up to, you know. Yeah, the, the Saoirse McHugh thing was very interesting watching all the centrist, uh, as they're called, the centrist journalists giving out about her because she said, um, I haven't got the quote in front of me, but she said something along the lines of parliamentary democracy or is not going to deliver the change. The same stuff that you're just saying there. And they, they're criticizing that and saying, well, how else do you have influence over? These are journalists. These are influencers. These are the people who, you know, have all, all these opinions that they throw out there, including this one, but refuse to run for election themselves and then criticize people who say, I'm going to do it a different way. 
um, you know, as if trade unions aren't democracy themselves or, you know, valuable to our democracy and all the rest of it. Um, but well, Jane, Jane mentioned the right to water protest. I mean, that was the only thing in the last 20 or 30 years, for you could argue maybe 100 years, that's actually scared the shit out of the establishment. And the reason why it scared the shit out of the establishment was precisely because it was not within the confines of parliamentary democracy. It existed outside that and the energy and the politics of it um, you know, would never have happened in a parliament or through a parliament or through a political party. In fact, there were political parties that ran to, to kind of join it and get behind it because mm. they completely missed they completely missed the whole dynamic happening in, in Ireland. So um, that's the kind of politics we have to look to in the future. Mm. Yeah. You know, we, we need to scare the shit out of the establishment, not 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 kind of you know be party to and to party to preserving the status quo. Yeah. And, and as you say, like even with Right to Water, Fianna Fáil were the party that introduced the, you know, the water charges um, legislation way back in 2010-11. Um, and then it was them making the promises in the, in the election in 2016 to say we're going to scrap water charges. And that's, you know, the, the, the influence that that protest movement had. Fianna Fáil knew that they weren't getting seats unless they joined that position. So, yeah, the, the, that, that's democracy, protests, movements. Um, that's what happens. But this, this Greens development is really interesting in, in setting up their own little factional group, as you called it, um, and how many people are in it. And the, the prominent names that are in it as well, as well are very interesting. And look, um, we'll do a plug for another podcast, but Echo Chamber podcast has a really good interview with uh, Saoirse McHugh over the weekend after she left, talking about why she was leaving the party that she didn't see it as a you know a vehicle for change that she wanted and the bullying that she talks openly about the bullying that went on in the party uh, how she wasn't because she spoke out about the carbon tax she wasn't being invited to party meetings um there's a lot of stuff going down in their whatsapp groups it's a it's a really illustrative piece around political parties in ireland not just the greens i'd say but in others as well about uh, top-down uh, opinions and not having not allowing any vocal voices but what I found really interesting about the, the interview was how she was describing this Just Transition Greens, the G, JTG group that has been established as potentially aligning themselves together as a block to leave the party while it's in government, uh, which would be a serious blow and something now that the government and the pro you know, program for government um, Greens will have to listen to because it will be devastating for them to lose hundreds of activists uh, across the country, where they've already lost a number of them over the weekend um, and, and last week. But it, it's, it's really dangerous because these are their canvassers. These are the people that have got those, those um, people into, into, the, um, into the doll in the first place. Um, Jean, have you anything to come in on this? Um, well, look, I, I was looking at some of the stuff that the Greens were uh, saying during the week and uh, uh, I don't know how people feel about the, the it's in the programme for government about the universal basic income with no capping on it. Um, well, I think it's a good idea for low paid earners. Uh, it's a great idea for low paid earners, but I don't think it's very fair that if you're on 70 grand a year that you're, you know, you're, that you're going to be getting this. Um, you know, Jed Nash was on about the, the, the minimum wage and, and that, and, you know, low paid earners, uh, he said they're spenders rather than savers because they spend everything out of their weekly um, income on, on the basics. Um, but I, I do think as well that the danger with, with raising, now not that it's a danger, don't get me wrong, obviously the minimum wage and the living wage should be much higher. But uh, I, I've seen it myself that uh, when, when you do, when different companies 
uh, raise either up to minimum wage or especially with the living wage, they tend to cut the hours um, of the people that are there. So I think, you know, something really needs to be done about that. There, I personally, my daughter works in a, in a store and they got a living wage. But as soon as it came in, everybody's hours were cut. So they didn't benefit. Actually, they lost out on it. Um, so there's so many things to go with it. It's, uh, that I, apart from the living wage and minimum wage uh, that they need to be raised, the big ma the massive issue is uh, tackling the high cost of living, particularly uh, in Dublin. Now, I'm not from Dublin myself, so I'm not endorsing that you know people in Dublin deserve better. But like the cost of rents here are just insane. And if you have somebody on uh, minimum wage, 10 euro, 10 cent an hour on, a, on an average week, they're taking home 404 euro. And then they're, I, I would imagine that the majority of people are probably paying 70 to 80% of that wage in rent just to live in, in, you know, here. So look, I don't know what, what really, I don't know the ins and the outs of the universal uh, basic income. I know they tried it in Finland. They did a pilot program in Finland for two years. And while it really aided in the mental health um, of the, those that were on it, uh, it was no, there was no incentive there for people to work. They didn't get out. Yeah, the sooner the Greens drop that stupid idea of universal basic income, the better. The only option is the jobs guarantee. So if anyone's listening to this, there's loads of good stuff out there on the jobs guarantee and what states can do. There's an awful lot that needs done in society and there's an awful lot of people need should be getting paid to do it. And that's what we want. We want a state's job guarantee, not some liberal nonsense about UBI. You know, because as we all know, UBI ends up as a replacement for welfare benefits. Yeah. It ends up as a replacement for all of the various benefits we get. And it's usually adopted as a kind of right-wing version, not that kind of quasi-left-wing version. So maybe Dave will have a debate next week on the jobs guarantee. I'm yeah. say that again, jobs guarantee. I'm just going to keep saying jobs guarantee for people research it and look it up. So there's the jobs guarantee and uh, there's the universal basic services uh, and, and that's more investment in healthcare. I mean, one of the reasons that um, people's, you know, are struggling is because they feel that they need to have private healthcare. It's one of, you know, 44% of the population have that. Now, if you got rid of um, your hospital fees, your, you get rid of your, you know, doctor fees, there's actually a good article that we might cover in a few minutes about um, terminally ill patients having their medical cards taken off them. If you get rid of the, those charges that these people are having to pay, it's better than actually putting universal basic income into their pockets. It, you know, provide them with free transport, free healthcare, you know, public housing, investment in services is better. So there's three elements that I would argue, as you said, jobs guarantee, universal basic services, and then free collective bargaining rights. That's what you need. Those three would address um, many of the problems. But as you said, Jean, and we, we, we'll come back to it. No, I'm, I'm going to cover it now, actually. There is that article that you mentioned, uh, will Ireland's low-paid workers receive a minimum wage rise? Um, so questions about the, the decision by the low-pay commission um, to defer uh, a decision on whether to recommend the government uh, a minimum wage rise is, is continuing. And obviously the business lobby is out there in this paper arguing against any minimum wage increases whatsoever, as they always do since, the, you know, since, since 120 years ago when unions were actually arguing for a, a minimum wage rise. They've never welcomed it or said, you know, okay, we'll, we'll go along with this. And every time, every single time they come out when it's announced that there's going to be a minimum wage, I'd saying there's going to be job losses. It's going to destroy the economy, all this scaremongering. And yet the papers 
don't seem to, you know, these, these people are crying wolf. The papers don't pick them up on it and say, well, hold on, you said there was going to be job losses last time. And actually, we've had the economy grow. We've had, you know, uh, growth in unemployment. Um, but there is a big article there on whether or not um, low paid workers are going to get a minimum wage rise. And if ever, I, I think you touched on this, Gene, when you said it a few minutes ago, if ever many of these businesses could give a minimum wage rise, it's now because most of their employees are being subsidized by the state. Um, so there's nothing for them to complain about. And of course, in the minimum wage legislation is an inability to pay clause, which has only ever been used once, to my knowledge, since 2002 when we brought in the, the, the minimum wage initially. Um, Kieran, have you got anything to add on this? Or are you okay and want to move on to another story? Uh, no, I think you've summed up on that whole issue pretty well there, um, Dave. Uh, I think... I think the question I would like to know is, in terms of the Low Pay Commission and deferring um, any potential minimum wage increase, or even to have that get together to discuss that, was that unanimous, that decision to defer, or um, was there any sort of opposition to it from the trade union reps on the Low Pay Commission? Because I'm aware that ICTWI have a position paper in respect of um, not looking for an increase in the national minimum wage, but looking for the living wage to be applied. Um, and that sort of came out in around um, the onset of the pandemic. Uh, it doesn't, the article doesn't actually say whether there was dissent within the, the group. I know in the past they have had minority reports um, where the unions have wanted more than the 10 cent, I think it was in 2017 or 18, they wanted more than the 10 cent per hour. Um, this one doesn't say it. The, defer, the, the decision to defer appears to be, and I could be wrong on this, it appears to be, not, I wouldn't say unanimous, but it's coming from the entire low pay commission. Um, now, rumours have it, I don't know how true they are, but rumours have it that some uh, members of the committee uh, or the commission are seeking reductions in the minimum wage. So, as you know, we're all trade unionists here. There's trade-offs that go on, and, and, and I don't know where they are with it. Well, I'd like to assume, and I take it for granted, that um, the trade union reps have dissented from that. Well, I, I, as I say, I don't know. I'm sure at the table they would have, but whether or not there's a, a separate report, I haven't had a chance to go and look at this report. Um, but... Uh, we but then what? again, it, it, it then again raises the point, Dave, and I think I touched on this either last week or a couple of weeks ago. You know, in terms of this type of press coverage, um, I think it's important that those that represent um, the workers, um, the working classes, actually get their their speak into the the media. And uh, as regards this, that it always seems to be the media reportage always seems to be business centric. Um, and I think it's important that we have to facilitate um, the union voices, the workers' voices, as much as we possibly can. Now, I know that can be difficult, um, given the way some newspapers and media are aligned. But nevertheless, we should be hammering on that drum. Yeah. Uh, and that, that moves us on to the next story as well, um, which is it, it's, it, it's very much linked. But it's this whole stimulus package that has come out um, from the government this week, uh, which again, as I mentioned earlier, all of the uh, employers' bodies, the hotels federation, the, they're they're all complaining about it and saying it didn't go far enough. They, they wanted more. 
Um, the the big one, I suppose, the front page, as I mentioned earlier on, on the Indo is about the VAT cut for all services and goods uh, from 23% to 21%, uh, which is going to cost, um, according to one of the articles inside it, it's going to cost 450 million euros. Now, thinking of the logic of this, the VAT has been cut from 23 to 21%. As we saw, and it says this, by the way, in all of the papers, as we saw when they cut the VAT for the hotel industry back in 2011, uh, they cut it from 13.5% down to 9%. Not one hotel, not one hotel passed that VAT cut on to consumers. They pocketed it. Um, and the expectation then again on this is that the VAT cut is going to come in. 450 million euros is going to go into the back pockets of employers all across the country who are still having their workers subsidized by the state. I mean, it's a massive package to go into the back pockets of these employers. And yet we're having um, all of the employers coming out and criticizing it and very little in the papers from trade unions. Stevie. Yeah, I was just reading this morning that, that the, the fiscal stimulus package is worth over 5.2 billion and, and Pascal. Our man Pascal says it's worth about a thousand euros for every person in Ireland. And I thought, well, it might be worth a thousand euros for everybody in Ireland. It doesn't mean they're going to get it. That's the point. You, know, you might as well have given a thousand euros to everyone in Ireland. They would have been able to spend it into their local economies because most of that money is usually going to disappear into those corporations and disappear into those um, companies. And it will never see the light of day again. It will go to bolster profits or go out to pay dividends with big companies. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's going, once again, it goes to the wrong parts of our society, all of these additional monies. I mean, it's, it's an additional package to the subsidies that have already come in. Uh, and there, there's estimates that there's 20 billion euros have now been spent on, on, on uh, keeping businesses afloat. Not keeping people in jobs as much as keeping businesses afloat so that they can keep people in jobs. Um, but that money... And we're going to hear these arguments over the next couple of months. That money will have to be repaid. And it's about how it's going to be repaid. I know where you will come from, Stevie, on this stuff. Of, uh, you know, it's not necessary. Um, but only if, if you control your own central bank and own, control your own currency. We're not. We're at the, the, the whim of the European Central Bank because we're in the euro. So the, we are stuck in this situation where austerity is coming down the line. Jean, did you see anything on the fiscal stimulus package or any other stories that you want to talk about? Um, no, I didn't see, I didn't uh, do anything on that now, but uh, the, can, I saw a lot there actually yesterday uh, on social media with regards to the teachers and a lot of negativity towards unions from people. Um, you know, it comes across very strongly like, oh, the unions don't want the schools to reopen. Um, and I saw comments from parents going, oh, my kids have to get back to school. They're driving me crazy. I mean, it's is not what this is about it's about the safety of the teachers it's about the safety of the students the admin staff the maintenance workers in the schools um i don't think the government have, have put out uh, a concise document about their, their return to education um and i think you know i think union wise we need to be pushing uh what we're saying are the important things behind this it's it's well obviously everybody wants to get back to work the teachers want to get back to work and you know, a lot of there's a lot of negativity around teachers sitting on their arses since last March. Teachers have not been sitting on their arses. They've been on Zoom. They've been putting together packages. They've been they have been in and out of the schools, getting stuff, uh, preparing stuff for their students. Um, so I think it's a huge thing that we need to look at and and support the teachers. I don't think they're getting enough support. Um, 
from just from the general public. It's just get back to school, open up. Uh, there's a huge onus on, well, we'll be the only country uh, in Europe that isn't reopening our schools. So what? If it's not safe to reopen them, then don't reopen them. If we have to hang on for another three weeks or a month or six weeks until we have proper protocols in place, well, then hang on. It's, it's the safety of, of the students and the teachers and all the staff within the schools that's important. Absolutely. And we've been saying it on this podcast the last, well, since the start of the crisis, actually, um, that this isn't a, an economic decision. This is a, a workplace health and safety position. Um, why should teachers be you know, forced into the most cramped classrooms in Europe? Like, we have the most packed classrooms in Europe uh, and be expected to, 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 to teach kids who may be you know, ill and passing it on. And of course, we'll see a, a second wave at some stage. It's about how bad that second wave, wave is going to be. And I can tell you now, if you open the schools now, right now as they are, we're going to have one of the worst second waves across the developed world. Um, there, there is parts of that fiscal stimulus package that relate to this. Um, the funding, the, the headline in the, on page two of the Times uh, from the weekend, the, the Irish Times from the weekend, says um, funding to reopen schools is insufficient, warns ASTI, the, the, the teachers' union. Um, but it's probably the most balanced article above it there by Carl O'Brien in a Q&A article about what the uh, education stimulus package is it, it, it says it will include extra funding for hundreds of additional substitute teachers and special needs assistance um, this is in light of the fact that staff are being advised not to turn up to work if they have COVID-19 symptoms so they, they're recognizing the fact that they need more uh, workers it will they will provide hand sanitizer and personal protective equipment is being sourced centrally and will be distributed to schools the cost of this uh, between now and the end of the year is estimated to be about 50 million plus, right? All these things are absolutely essential for the health and safety, not only of children and of the teachers, um, but of uh, the general public afterwards, because obviously kids don't just go to school and not go home. Um, but there's a, the, the reason I say it's the most balanced bit, it says, well, there have been headlines that teachers unions will not return to unsafe school. A closer reading of what they actually say is that they will return as long as public health rules are fully adhered to. Um, which unfortunately is not what you're getting from broadcast and print media. Um, the, the real story of what the trade unions are actually saying on this issue. It says the unions have played a key role in shaping the steps to be announced on Monday, such as providing extra substitution and supervision cover uh, and funding for schools to ensure its guidelines are, implement, are, are implemented. Um, so it seems likely that teachers will support reopening plans subject to those additional measures being in place. So, I mean, this is what you call balanced journalism. It's actually listening to what the unions are saying and not just scaremongering uh, about these unions don't want to go back. Um, yeah, so, and as you say, teachers are not employed to be babysitters. They're there to teach. And if the facilities are not there for them to be able to teach, then they shouldn't go back. Kieran, do you want in on this? I know you're connected to teachers. That might be a good thing. Um, yeah. It's Again, I think Jean's made a lot of very good points um, regarding this particular subject. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting to note how this has all been lined up. Like, apparently on Monday tomorrow, um, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, who, to be honest with you, I wouldn't have much confidence in, um, she is going to make, announce a very robust package um, whereby they're going to be able to open the schools. I would like to think before she would announce that, that she would have had the agreement of the unions who would have been coming out and saying, yes, 
We are aware of the robust package. We're not prepared to delve into it. It's going to be announced on the 27th of July by the Minister, and she has the right to do that without us making any comment other than to say that we were fully engaged in what that robust package is and that we fully support it. But ahead of that, you have what you rightly pointed out um, is the ASTI concerns, and it would suggest to me that that robust package won't be or hasn't been agreed by the unions, and they're going to be set up um, over the month of August as being obstructive to the opening of the schools. And the media will play a huge part in this, and they will pander to the so-called frustrated and hassled parents that are out there. And on all of this, they'll forget that this is about the health and safety, not only of the workers right across the whole educational system, but even the students. And the very fact that the students, um, and if there's an outbreak of COVID-19 in a school, what happens with that? Do they close down the school? Do they close down the communities that belong to that school? Um, because to quote Leo Faradka, you know, this pandemic doesn't uh, know it's, uh, it doesn't uh, differentiate between friends and enemies. It just basically infects people. And it's going to be interesting. I first, I, I reserve commentary here what the package is tomorrow. I have no confidence in it. And I know for a fact that the media is going to line up the unions as being some sort of obstructive force to the opening of the schools. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes with this whole open, reopening of the schools. And sometimes, well, I'm from Dublin, right? I, I, I know the rest of you aren't, but um, there's often this um, attitude from people living in Dublin about how, um, basically forgetting about how rural Ireland operates. And there's a good piece on the front page of the, the Weekend Times uh, that, that would be completely missed by most people in Dublin. The R National Bus and Rail Union, uh, NBRU, has warned of difficulties with school transport in September and said investment would be needed if social distancing is to be maintained. Tom O'Connor of the NBRU said physical distancing rules could reduce the capacity of buses by up to 50%, making it very challenging to carry the number of the current number of children to schools in September. So there's those, those issues as well about getting kids to the school um, and forcing, you know, what, what, what about the parents that don't have access to a car and transport and um, who rely on these uh, buses they just can't send their kids to school now um, and then they'll be victimized by the state for, for, for not actually doing it as well and um, so there's that and then I'll, I'll stick with the fiscal stimulus plan because there's there's also another piece in the Irish Times I don't know if any of you have seen it about the holiday the staycation proposals from the government um, where you will get a tax back at the end of the year um, if you can um, take a photograph of your receipts if you use them in the likes of uh, hotels and restaurants and uh, then send them into the department and you, you, you'll get a, a tax back. But, and it was great to listen to Sarah McInerney pressing the, the, the former Taoiseach Leo Varadkar on at the Taunish, the now a minister, um, asking him, you know, what about pensioners who don't pay tax? What about, you know, low paid workers who don't earn enough to pay taxes? The people who we're talking about on the minimum wage, they're not gonna get anything back if they staycation at home. And there is a letter in the Irish Times, which I'll try and dig out, which illustrates this. And um, when I say it illustrates it, he, he talked to, he said, I will have to spend 3,250 euros to get a tax credit of 650 euros. This is not going to happen. Two weeks in a wet and windy Ireland followed by a tax return doesn't sound like a holiday to me. What about the huge numbers of people 
not in the tax net and, and the equally huge number that don't make an annual tax return. The incentive sounds more like a gimme for high net worth citizens who will probably stay in five star resorts anyway uh, and send their receipts to their accountants to make the claim. That's, that's, that's really what's going to happen here. Most people who are low paid either won't get the tax back or won't have the ability to even look for the tax back. Um, so it's another part of the stimulus package that's biased towards high earners. Um, Steve, have you got any other stories there that you want to come in with? And there's a really interesting story in the, well, important story in the, in the Times again about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And it's just, it says, the, the headline is, by the time you finish reading this article, Jeff Bezos will be $1.2 million richer. <laughs> um, apparently he made $13 billion last Monday. Uh, you know, I, I don't really know how to process that in my head, that level of wealth, but it's, it's just a real fluffy piece about it. I'll read one paragraph out from there, whoever wrote this. Um, I can't see the name of the person. As Amazon has transformed, so had Bezos. The jug-eared geek with a horseshoe hairline has been replaced by a sleek business badass with a chrome magnon-like physique, the result of a serious bodybuilding regime. I mean, who writes this shite? I mean, seriously. I mean, oh my God. But the, apparently his wealth is up to 190 billion. He's just behind New Zealand which is the 52nd richest country on the planet. So he's, you know, he's, he's richer than most countries on the planet now, Jeff. But there's a, the interesting backdrop to this, of course, is one about what we do with these big monopolies, because he's facing a Senate hearing, I think, next week, along with Google and eBay and some of these other big massive monopolies and how powerful they are, of course. But um, the one thing they proved to us, you know, Amazon and Walmart and Google and eBay, is that um, planned economies work. You know, Central planning works. These big organizations are showing us how to actually run um, an economy through uh, democratic central planning that you know the only problem is is that um, we don't have control of the steering wheel yet and if anyone's really interested it's a fantastic book called Republic People's Republic of Walmart by um, Michael Rozworski and Lee Phillips that kind of looks at how these big corporations are actually laying the foundations for socialism but that's the interesting part of this story is that they're becoming so big to quote Marx they're going to be you know the bourgeoisie above all produces its own grave diggers and they're kind of giving us all the ideas we need over the next 10 or 20 years of how to run an economy democratically. So I wouldn't, go on. No, I was just going to say, people listen to that, the, the wealth of someone like Jeff Bezos and, and, and just think, oh, sure, look, he worked hard. I, I'm not saying us, I'm not saying lefties, I'm not saying people who are clued in. Oh, look, he worked hard and you get rewards for all that sort of stuff. But it's nonsense and they don't even see how it impacts on them because, and it's great that you raised that because on page eight of today's business post, it says tech companies are turning to fossil fuels to power their data centers in Ireland. And one of those data centers happens to be Amazon. And I know I keep coming back to the data center stuff, but this, this actual article is just about the electricity that those data centers is using up, which is phenomenal and so big that they now have to go back to fossil fuels, but despite making all those commitments to say that this is going to be entirely clean. So where that's going to end up is us paying the price for it to fines in the EU for not abiding by our carbon emissions. So we're literally, taxpayers in Ireland are going to be literally paying for Jeff Bezos as well. So that, because he, he obviously needs the data centers in Ireland, we're building the infrastructure, we're building the roads, he's burning the fossil fuels and we're paying his fines. Um, and so effectively, it's us making Jeff Bezos wealthy, whether or not we're buying from Amazon or shopping in our local supermarket or lo local uh, shops. So um, just one of those very frustrating things. Kieran, have you got anything there? Not really. Um, one of the things that interested me, you know, sort of was looking at the Sunday world. There appears to be a nice documentary on BBC Two TJ Cahar tonight. It's actually entitled Nazi Sagiltacht, and it's about a, an interesting story um, researched by uh, Kevin McGee, who's fluent in Irish and went off to Teal and Gaeltacht here in southwest Donegal. 
um, and learnt of a story about a Nazi um, collaborator in World War II who actually spent time in Thiel and Geltacht and did a bit of supposed research in trying to sort of um, connect the Aryan race with um, the, the Celtic race. And um, he, he delved into this and he's come up with what I think might be an interesting documentary. And I thought I would just make that particular point. Like it just shows you where I am in terms of what I think is of interest in the newspapers. Um, I'll, go, I'll go to Jean next in a second, but before, seeing as Jean raised it anyway, um, uh, right, right to Water campaign, there's a good article there, well not a good article, it's actually just an excerpt from uh, an interview with the new Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, who also has obviously responsibility for water, and in it, it's talking about the Irish water referendum, now it's only two or three paragraphs, and it says that the council, he's trying to force council workers, including Unite members, Unite SIP2 and Connect members, he's trying to force those members over to uh, Irish water, they're currently still employed by the councils, and his leverage for doing it is the Irish water referendum, which I think is a really brash, arrogant way of dealing with workers, not using industrial mechanisms, but saying to them, we will give an Irish water, a right to water referendum, and keep water in public ownership, only if these workers move over to Irish water. What a piece of leverage. They're going to blame workers for not keeping the public ownership of our water system. It's going to be the fault of the employees and not of the minister who is using this as leverage over them. Um, I know I'm not asking you to comment on that, Gene, because I know your union is involved in it, but if you have any other stories there, throw them in and then we'll go to Stevie. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, well, I was down with the Debenham workers yesterday and like, while while they're constantly in the public eye, I don't think people, you know, we see them there standing outside Debenhams with their placards and we go off and look at something else. But the impact that what's happening to them is, is massive. They are, they're exhausted. They're standing out there seven days a week, morning, noon and night, trying to safeguard the stock. There was three ladies there yesterday that we spoke to. Um, just the implications for them to be, to be doing this alone like they were saying things like um, at night there they go to the back of the depot uh, because this is form a shelter there I suppose but because there's no toilet facilities for them they have to walk up dark laneways at night and they try to have four of them on on a shift uh, their numbers are dwindling um, because people are finding work elsewhere they've lost a lot of their male members who they really relied heavily on for the night shifts and even just to accompany them to go to the toilet at night. Um, you know, uh, they're, they've organized a protest for next Saturday, two o'clock uh, at the Garden of Remembrance, walking down to Debenhams. And I would really urge anybody that's in town or go into town specifically to support them because what they're doing is they're doing it for all workers. Um, and, and they, you know, they really deserve everybody's support. Every, everybody in the country should be rallying behind them and, and putting a voice behind them and, and getting them a decent redundancy package. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're involved in the dispute, uh, myself and Kieran. Um, but just uh, to illustrate again for, for listeners, and I'm sure everybody knows it anyway, but sometimes you're just conscious that you want to make sure that everyone understands exactly what's happening. But the Debenhams workers in April, there was over a thousand of them that received an email that said, basically, we're not going to open the stores. Uh, these are all out of a job. And subsequently, when the, the, the company went, the Debenhams Ireland went into liquidation, it was established that they had been transferring over the last number of year, years valuable assets out of the business. So the Debenhams.ie URL, the website, um, the leases, 
they were giving them over to the UK parent company so that then, a bit like this, not a bit like, exactly like the Cleary situation and the Paris Bakery situation and the Lacenza situation and the HMV game, yeah, the list goes on and on. But the, the question is, you know, did, could, who could have prevented this? Um, we, it's not something that happened overnight. It's a situation that those employers, those big businesses are making the most out of because of the loopholes that are left in the legislative system. So when Cleary's happened, there was a commission done, uh, a report commission um, called the Duffy Cahill Report, which the government has been sitting on for over three years now, refusing to implement. And had it been implemented, obviously the workers wouldn't be in the situation they're in. We saw a motion during the week. Um, by the Debenhams, uh, by, by Solidarity People Before Profit uh, in support of the Debenhams workers. The government amended it, changed it, and made it meaningless and then voted against it. So it was rejected, basically. Um, but what's really annoying, I won't use the word, is that some of the people who voted against it had been on the picket lines, getting their photographs taken over the last couple of weeks with those Debenhams working, telling them, I'm full square behind you. This is, goes back to prior to the actual... Um, a government formation, so you have Green Party people on the picket lines, you have Fianna Fáil people on the picket lines, and then again you have the Labour Party who only sends three of their TDs in to vote out of their six, so 50% of their, their TDs voted, which is very frustrating because of a, a, an, an argument you made earlier on, Gene, about um, you know, your daughter and others not having an um, ability to seek more hours at work. Um, back in 2017, when we were getting, bringing in the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act, or the secure hours or banded hours legislation around um, the banning of zero hour contracts. Again, uh, Labour Party only sent in less than 50% of their TDs to vote on the ability to seek more hours. We lost that vote by three. Had all of the Labour Party TDs turned up to that vote, that would be a piece of legislation right now, like every other worker across Europe has access to, but in Ireland, no, not good enough. Um, so it's, it's, it's very frustrating. But anyway, the Debenhams workers are doing a phenomenal job keeping this in the, the public domain, making sure that this doesn't happen to, to anybody else. Um, and, you know, if anyone deserves a round of applause for this, because this is stuff that they shouldn't have to do. It should have been done before. And as you say, Gene, they're doing it for other people because as this COVID lockdown, um, as we emerge from it and austerity kicks in, there's going to be thousands of people who lose their jobs. And the question then is, what type of situation will they be facing? And these Debenhams workers are trying to make sure that nobody faces the situation that they're in, where they have to fight for every penny they can get. Um, Stevie, you have a, a story to finish up, us up on. Yeah, it was just a little personal story, a bit like Kieran's one there before, the, the passing of Pete Green, the founding member of Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> uh, he passed away yesterday, 73, and he was... Uh, if anyone doesn't know this, Fleetwood Mac, the first three albums were absolutely fucking superb. And they outsold the Beatles. They outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones combined in 1969. But then, unfortunately, Pete had a, Pete had a, he took too much LSD and had a mental breakdown. And he was later diagnosed, unfortunately, with schizophrenia. But when I was about 11 years old, I was walking through Richmond Park in London, and we saw Pete Green. And he had long hair and he had a beard and his fingernails were like six inches long and he had a big Mac on. And we went, oi, oi, Pete, Pete, can we have your autograph? And he turned around slowly and went, fuck off. <laughs> an, absolute, an absolute legend of a man. So if you haven't listened to the pre-rumours Fleetwood Mac, listen to them. It's worth a listen. Yeah, uh, I've, I've listened to them. Oh, well, and Man of the World and all of that stuff. Really good albums. <laughs> um, right, okay. Well, we, we do I, had have, a, I had a, fu had a funny feeling Stevie would have to bring that story. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I think it's a good way to wrap up this uh, episode. Look, 
And this has been the Week at Work episode 13. Thanks to our guests, Stevie Nolan, Kieran Campbell, and of course, a special thanks to Gene O'Dowd, who joined us on a, a Sunday morning to review the papers. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Uh, so thanks and see you then. Thanks.